You're listening to Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, the gospel roots of rock and soul. I'm Cece Winans. While Thomas Dorsey was beginning to find success in Chicago, a boy named Ira Tucker was singing for Nichols at local tea parties in Spartanburg, South Carolina. He mimicked the stage moves and vocal acrobatics of his idols, the singers of the Golden Gate Quartet, the Fairfield Four, and the Heavenly Gospel Singers. His favorite group was a quartet from a few towns over, the Dixie Hummingbirds. Well, I must have Jesus all the way. They had a style of singing that I, I used to hear them on Sunday morning. Here's the late Ira Tucker speaking with NPR's Terry Gross in 1984. Really liked their harmony, you know. I had heard them a good while, and I was just trying to keep the trend of what they were doing. Davis, I, he created that style, you know. He created the Hummingbird's sound, and uh, it was it was tremendous. You know, I mean, you know, he had a beautiful sound back then. He's talking about James Davis, the longtime leader of the Dixie Hummingbirds. Davis established the group in 1928 after he witnessed the success of other traveling gospel quartets. Well, I used to. A gospel quartet is a group, usually early on a cappella, where the four voices are represented in harmony. Gospel historian Jerry Zoltan of Penn State University wrote the definitive history of the Dixie Hummingbirds. The typical structure would be a lead voice who sang over top, and then middle voices who would carry uh, the harmony back up, and then usually underneath a bass singer who uh, would pump out the bottom and keep the rhythm going, you know, and I think the groups were a cappella in the beginning because, you know, frankly, they, they didn't have the money to buy musical instruments, to take lessons. They worked with uh, what was right there handy in front of them. Trailblazing quartets like the Golden Gates and the Heavenly Gospel Singers passed through Spartanburg, touring churches and revivals on what people called the Gospel Highway. There were hundreds of these groups. So in the Dixie Hummingbirds, Ira Tucker saw a ticket out of town. His childhood friend, William Bobo, was already singing bass with the group. And Ira remembered what he told him. He said, well, Tuck, later on I'll come back and I'll try to get you in, in the group. And uh, I guess about a couple months, uh, maybe three months, they came back to sing. Mr. Davis came back. Papa turned 13. Ira's son, Ira Tucker Jr., says the Dixie Hummingbirds, James Davis, recognized his father's talents, and he asked Ira's mother if he could join the group. So he went and asked my grandmother if it would be all right for my dad to go on the road with the group. She made him promise that he would take care of him because she felt he stood a better chance with them. And I went to hear them that night, and I've been with them ever since. Oh, you know that every, every child, every child, every child of God, running for Jesus, an automobile. This was in 1938. 
For the next couple of years, they would mostly tour the South on the same gospel highway as Ira's Idols. Yeah, the Dixie Hummingbirds would get in their car and travel from little town to little town. They called it wildcatting. Jerry Zoltan says before the interstate highway era, Jim Crow ruled the two-lane roads. These black gospel quartets risked real danger. They didn't know where they would go from day to day. They created a path future rock and soul musicians would navigate. They would go to a little town, and back in those days, radio was a far more you know, available sort of thing. They'd knock on the door and say, hey, can we sing on your radio station? And uh, most of the time, that would be okay. And they'd stay there until they felt they had uh, saturated uh, that particular region. You've got to check on your brakes and stop your wicked ways. Ira Tucker Jr. recalls his father's story of one close call. The group was driving its beautiful Chrysler Imperial, a luxury sedan, to a gig in Georgia. Some local whites didn't like what they saw. You got like six guys sitting in this huge car. Can't be right. So they pulled them over and just hassled them, you know, and they, they didn't do anything. But they made them go to the station house. They had to check to make sure that no cars were stolen. They told the police they were a singing group on the way to a church show. The police officers said, prove it. So, <laughs> Richard Davis chose this song called Down On Me. And the lyrics are, it seems like everybody in the whole wide world is down on me. And it was so sad that the cop was almost in tears, right? And he goes, go ahead, man, y'all, y'all guys can go. And when he let them go and they told him, well, we're going to have to hurry to get there because you made us late, he gave them an escort so they could get there and do their show. Everybody, While that situation worked out, others didn't. Gospel groups got run out of town and lost bookings and money because white proprietors had a change of heart. Because of this, the Dixie Hummingbirds soon moved north, first to New York, then to Philadelphia. By 1942, gospel quartets gained national recognition on a rough but regular touring circuit. Groups like the Soulsters, the Fairfield Four, and the Golden Gate Quartet were religious music royalty. They performed live on radio stations across the country and played to huge audiences. The quartets were like our first superstars. Here's gospel DJ and music historian Deborah Smith Pollard. Again, because of just how they carried themselves and how they sounded. I mean, everybody likes a good quartet sound, and so all of that helped to propel gospel music beyond what people think of as, you know, the small church venue and bring it out to the wider world. The Dixie Hummingbirds were hungry to join their ranks. The quartets in this period wore matching outfits and developed intricate stage choreography. As the groups got better, the competition to top each other grew pretty intense. 
There were the Pilgrim Travelers from Houston, Texas, famous for their revolutionary alternating shape-shifting leads. The Fairfield Four from Nashville, Tennessee, featured the sweet bass melodies of Sam McQuarrie, whose vocal style B.B. King has admitted he copied. The Caravans from Chicago launched the careers of some of the greatest vocalists, Abatina Walker, Inez Andrews, and Shirley Caesar. I could go on and on. Hundreds of other groups pushed the boundaries of what this music could be. Jerry Zoltan, the author of Great God Almighty, A History of the Dixie Hummingbirds, told us fierce talent and competition helped generate a new performance style. Hard gospel to me uh, refers to uh, that kind of, of driving gospel. And one of the things they would do is pull out all the vocal stops and hold nothing back. I'm so glad I know. I know the words of prayer. America wasn't ready for that scream yet, you know. Ira Tucker Jr. The Dixie Hummingbirds broke through in large part because of his father, Ira Tucker, a singer with a performance style nobody'd seen or heard before. My old man was the first to jump off the stage. All right, he jumped off the stage, went down in the audience and sang to the people. That was unheard of, all right? So that was something that kind of opened the door. I know the moon is dripping away. Gospel had opened many doors by the 1950s. The traveling groups helped develop a musical ecosystem of radio stations, performance venues, record labels that could sustain their careers over decades. So many of these guys who came out of quartet and they bring that soulfulness, um, they bring the swag. <laughs> gospel DJ and scholar Deborah Smith Pollard. They bring that ability to reach out to their audience. They really want to pull the audience in, and certainly within the Black community, because they still have all of that presence, that great voice, that ability to connect with them. But with great popularity, with something to sell, comes money and responsibility. you got to live so as the pressure to cross over to sign deals with secular music companies mounted for the best singers, it presented an existential spiritual issue for the groups who wanted to stay together and sing gospel music. James Davis was raised up in the Holiness Church, and you couldn't smoke or drink or nothing like that, you know. Ira Tucker and the Dixie Hummingbirds saw themselves as a religious club with strict bylaws. You got to credit those rules to uh, Mr. James Davis. Carlton Lewis III is a Dixie Hummingbird now. Under him, he told us, the rules continue. 
No drinking, no swearing, no smoking, no outside women, or none of that stuff. Even on down to your uniforms. Your uniforms just had to be so intact. Uh, you got fined for having the wrong pocket square. Those fines can really add up, and they're a way of reinforcing the underlying idea of their music that while they can jump off the stage to screaming fans or shout the words to the hymns, it's all in the name of God. The Dixie Hummingbirds have stuck to their rules for more than 90 years. The members say that sustains their legendary commitment to gospel music. Other groups turned out differently. This was one of the very best during this golden age of gospel quartets. The Solster's secret, Bob Maravich told us, was a singing technique called the switch lead. One lead to start, another lead to build the temperature a little bit higher, and the first lead comes back and builds it a little further to the point where people start leaping out of their seats with this music overcome because of this this sort of buildup of, of this uh, religious tension. Roy Crane established the five solsters of Houston in 1928. It didn't take long for them to dominate the local gospel scene. They famously recorded with Alan Lomax in 1936 for the Library of Congress. In our listening to the five solsters of Houston, Texas, uh, we are singing... And Austin, Texas, on February the 12th, for the Library of Congress and Washington. After they added tenor R.H. Harris, famous for his falsetto, they really pulled ahead of the competition. The group moved to Chicago in 1937 and quickly made a name there. They landed a deal to cut a record in California the following year. By the 1940s, the group had a regular Sunday morning radio program in Chicago and became one of the top-selling quartets in the country. This was the group that young Ira Tucker would have seen on the Gospel Highway passing through South Carolina. Gospel quartets from around the country sought them out to absorb their style. The Soul Stairs, my favorite. Retired Dixie Hummingbird, the Reverend Joe Williams, told us he'd catch the Solsters every time they came through his hometown of Philadelphia. It was really my, for real, we couldn't tell anybody that was my favorite group. Because I, I could never hear what the birds were doing. It just, the uh, style and the arrangement was so duplicated, it's, it's complicated. But just the Solsters, I could hear that. You know, I said, man... Those guys could really sing. The harmony was just different. You know we'll understand. The group's popularity grew and grew. So did demands for a heavier touring and recording schedule. These pressures almost became a crisis when R.H. Harris left in 1950. Fortunately for the group, another singer waited in the wings. A little flower that blooms in May A lovely sunset at the end 
of a day. They were very impressed by this young man named Sam Cooke, who was singing with the Highway QCs in Chicago. Bob Maravich says Sam Cooke oozed charisma. But he was, you know, he was a young guy. And you're talking about trying to uh, replace a venerable quartet giant with an unknown young person. It hadn't been done. Sam's debut, biographer Peter Goralnik says, wasn't as smooth as his voice. The first program he did with the Soulsters in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, when he was just uh, 19 years old, he was blown off the stage by the Pilgrim Travelers and the Five Blind Boys, by their showmanship, by the way in which Archie Brownlee and the two leads for the Pilgrim Travelers just shouted, and he attempted to do that and, and failed. Gronick says the managers of the Pilgrim Travelers and the Solsters noticed. They told him to relax and rely on what he did best. Your strength is in the unique way in which you can draw the listener to you. You can draw the congregation to you. And that was the basis for Sam's gospel style, was this kind of crooning style. It was a, uh, a seductive style. Jesus gave me water and it was not where there was a woman. Sam took the advice and gracefully adapted his seductive syrupy voice to the ensemble. The Soulsters made their first recordings with him in 1951. With Sam at the lead, the group achieved national stardom in the next five years. That brings us back to the beginning. By the time of the Solsters sold out Shrine Auditorium performance in 1955, Sam had established himself as a gospel star because of his vocal chops and his fluency in pop. Sex appeal was as real in the church as it was in the world outside, and Sam had it. Young girls would rush the stage just to breathe the same air. Record label executives wanted a piece of him, too. He saw an opportunity. Bob Maravich. If he was making a few thousand dollars with the Soul Stirrers, somebody said, you can make $50,000 over here. It's hard to talk to a gospel artist who was not offered that opportunity. They offered me $100,000. Yeah. <laughs> Insane. That pop, one pop song. And... Uh, they fixed all kind of beautiful things for me to eat and took me to this man a mansion. Miriam Williams is considered one of the greatest gospel singers of all time. Early in her career, she was a member of the famous Ward Singers before she became a solo artist. She told NPR's Terry Gross in 1993 about facing the same choices Sam did. And, um... I got in the hotel room, and the Lord began to deal with me and let me know not to cross over. I said, because of the gospel, and you've been singing the gospel, that's why these folk love you, because you sang the gospel. And then I began to cry, and because the money sounded extra good. It was hard turning it down, really. I had to be truthful about that. While Marion and many other gospel singers said no to the pop music money, Sam couldn't resist it. 
months after the Shrine Auditorium concert, he was cutting his first secular soul recordings. Love above my girl. We were in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and we were at the church of Reverend Cleophas Robinson. Pastor Donald Gay, Sam's childhood friend from Chicago. A local radio DJ invited Donald and Reverend Robinson, another gospel legend, to the station and said, you gotta hear this. And he puts this record on. He starts out with his signature. You knew it was Sam. I love you, I love you, I love you. You know, going on. But Reverend Robinson said, that's Sam. And he said, God is not going to be happy with that. Neither were many people who loved the Solsters. Bob Merovich told us. You know, how could Sam do this? They loved Sam and were very heartbroken when he did that. In their minds, understanding maybe why he would do it, but didn't accept it. But um, they, they were very heartbroken. It was like he broke up with them. Darling, you send me. At the same time, what Sam did struck a generation of artists who grew up in the church as a revelation. We were going down the highway. We were somewhere in the South. The late Aretha Franklin told NPR's Terry Gross in 1999 how sad she felt when she learned Sam had crossed over. And just out of the dark came this fabulous voice. And it was Sam, and it was his first record, and he was singing, You Send Me, and there was just pandemonium in the car. My sister and I just had a fit. We really had to pull over and stop the car and settle down. Oh, my God, it's Sam, it's Sam. Sam inspired Aretha, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, and scores of other black musicians to pursue pop music. He pointed the way into a new promised land of worldly riches and acclaim. After hundreds of years of slavery, Jim Crow, and oppression, it felt like deliverance that a black gospel singer could become America's biggest pop star. But this moment also triggered a soul-stirring question. Who are we singing for? Next time. He was really ostracized because at some point he wanted to go back and sing with the quartet. And he did it in some instances, and the, the audience would boo him this off This hour stage. of Saturday night and Sunday morning, The Gospel Roots of Rock and Soul was written and produced by Alex Lewis. For more stories, visit our website at xpngospelroots.org. The Gospel Roots of Rock and Soul has been supported by the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage. The executive producers are Roger LeMay and Bruce Warren. Senior producer, Alex Lewis. Assistant producer, Whitney Jones. Editor, Cheryl Duvall. Mixing by Jeff Town. Our production assistant is Rachel Ishikawa. Archival audio courtesy of NPR's Fresh Air with Terry Gross, the Studs Turco Radio Archive, the Library of Congress, and Seattle Pacific University. Special thanks to Ann Powers, Robert Merovich, Jerry Zoltan, and Donald Dumpson. I'm Cece Winans. Thanks for listening.
The Gospel Roots of Rock and Soul is presented in collaboration with NPR Music and is produced in Philadelphia by WXPN at the University of Pennsylvania.